All right, friends. Well, welcome. If you don't know me, my name is Leah. I am the, the lead pastor here at Haven. I think I know y'all. I'm super glad to be here with you on Easter, worshiping together. It's been a while. <laughs> so he is risen. He is risen. He is risen. Amen. Amen. So it was my 30th birthday. And as a young mother, the one thing I wanted for my special day was like a little basic pampering, specifically the opportunity for a much overdue haircut. I was a mother of only one child at the time. And for those of you who don't know, I now have three. Um, but at the time, a little Elliot, otherwise known as the purple haired drummer, um, he was just over a year old. And moms in the room, you probably know, remember those early years of parenting very littles. There's not often a lot of time for self-care, right? It's hard to shower. It's hard to go to the bathroom alone, let alone like go to a salon and get your hair done. And so for my 30th birthday, my best friend at the time volunteered to make that happen. And so the idea was we would go together to the salon. We would have our haircuts back to back. And while one of us was getting our haircut, the other one would hang out in the waiting area with little toddler Elliot. And then afterwards, we'd all go out for lunch together. Seemed like a brilliant plan. At first it was, my friend Janice kept Elliot happy and busy while I got my hair cut done. The, the rinse, the trim, the blowout, it was beautiful. I felt so good. And then I took over the baby minding duties while my friend took her turn in the chair. And now little Elliot was still kind of gaining confidence as a walker. And so he put his little hands on the coffee table and he was like doing laps around the coffee table, just kind of toddling around it until something gave way in his feet and his balance started to teeter. And before I could reach out to grab him, I see his little head go head first right into the corner of the coffee table at the salon instantly. The serene spa setting was transformed as screams emitted from his tiny body, gushes of blood poured forth from his forehead. The hostess like quickly runs over and brings me a towel, but it is like very rapidly soaked with blood. Blood is being smeared on the carpet, on the furniture. My distressed toddler is thrashing and wailing. And it, I am also distressed trying not to thrash and wail myself. My friend Janice extracted herself from the chair. Thankfully, she had only just been rinsed, not yet cut. So we didn't have to like walk out in like a half a haircut situation. Um, so she drives the two of us with haste to the emergency room where we spent the rest of my birthday afternoon getting six stitches sewn in the forehead of my baby. There's a picture of it. Happy birthday. <laughs> so Elliot's head of course healed. And he was young enough that he doesn't really remember the incident um, that gave him the mark, but he still wears it on his forehead. If you are going to ask him about it, you know, maybe, maybe not all at once, but it is there. You can see it if you take a close look. Um, and we, when we were, when he was in the more like seven, eight, he had dark brown hair and glasses and we called it his Harry Potter scar. Um, and it always has been there and it always will be there telling the story of his mom's birthday years ago when he was just a baby. You can take it down. 
<laughs> we don't need to keep looking at Frankenstein baby. <laughs> well, today's Easter Sunday, a day that is the culmination of the Lenten journey many of us have taken over the last six weeks. And it's the day that <clears throat> the Jesus-centered tradition we are connected to celebrates as our great source of joy. The day we celebrate that death does not need to be the end of the story, that Jesus died on Good Friday, but rose on Sunday, the day we honor that there is life after loss. There is what the Christian faith calls resurrection. Now I say this with the knowledge that we as a society are living in a kind of resurrection moment. This very gathering, you could say, is a kind of a resurrection. This is our first in-person Easter celebration since COVID. The last two years, we celebrated the holiday at a distance, connecting only online. And yet after those two disorienting, virtually only Easter gatherings, here we are again, gathering in person, many of us, and, and some of us, I'm sure, online. Um, we have lively music. There's a good number of us here at one time. We have a party to enjoy after the service. And this life after loss kind of moment is just one in a series of moments that I think many of us are experiencing these days. As more and more offices are calling their workers back to their campuses, masks are being removed in more and more social settings, live entertainment has returned with plays and concerts back on the books. Is that for me? I'll take it, yeah. I, I do, I will acknowledge, I have a little bit of something going on in my throat today, but. I'm COVID negative, so whatever it is, it's not that. <clears throat> so yeah, so we're all in this place. We've got live entertainment coming back. This summer, more events will likely take place than have taken place over the last couple of years. Lots of us will probably travel. We're likely continue to move further into this season of what comes after many of the most dramatic, painful moments of the COVID pandemic. And yet, I'm not sure any of us who lived through life before March 2020 and are also alive now, believe that what we are moving into is like some simple return to what came before, right? The illusion that we could or that we would even want to simply pause life and return to it was shattered long ago, probably like June 2020. What we're living now is indeed some sort of life that has come after a season of loss, but it's not a return to what was. It is something different. And this to me is what also resonates with this event we honor today, the event of resurrection. Truthfully, I think churches often have an annoying habit of reducing the Easter story down quite a bit. Everything's distilled into victory. Yes, Good Friday was sad. Jesus was wrongfully convicted and brutally murdered, but it's okay. He rose. It's all good. Happy ending. Now we all get to live happily ever after. Praise the Lord. Turn that frown upside down. He is risen indeed. Nothing to be sad about. But is life after resurrection actually supposed to look that way? Perhaps some of us wondered whether we should even come today. Maybe we don't really identify with that fully celebratory, standing completely in the victory kind of mood. 
And if that's you today, I just feel in a mix of feelings, feeling like things are more complicated than simple. I want to assure you the emotional space you are in completely belongs here. Personally, I think it's about as resurrection as it gets. So where do I get this more complicated picture of resurrection from? I think Jeannie kind of alluded to it in her kid's story, and, and we'll think about it a bit more, um, because it comes from the stories from Jesus's followers that they themselves told those moments after he returned. Yes, of course, there were places of surprise and joy and celebration, and there should be those for us too, but there were also other experiences in the mix as well. And looking at a story that shows some of those other experiences, I think might be helpful for us today as we encounter our own moment of life after loss and wonder what things might look like going forward. So with that in mind, I'll go ahead and read our story for today and you'll have it on the screen if you wanna follow along. We are picking up not on Easter morning, but with an incident that took place a bit later, according to the book of John. Later that day, we pick up our tale the evening of the first Easter, as related in the Gospel of John in chapter 20. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the disciples had gathered together and locked the doors of the place because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. And Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. Just as the father has sent me and I also send you. And after he said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you retain anyone's sins, they are retained. Now, Thomas called Didymus, one of the 12, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, but he replied, unless I see the wounds from the nails in his hands, and I put my finger into the wounds from the nails, and I put my hand into his side, I will never believe it. Eight days later, the disciples were again together in the house and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, examine my hands, extend your hand, put it into my side. Do not continue in your unbelief, but belief. And Thomas replied to him, my Lord and my God. So as I've named in our setup, this is a story with a lot going on emotionally. There is joy and celebration to be sure, but that's not all there is. There's also fear, there's skepticism, there's wonder, intimacy. What I find most fascinating is what seems to be at the center of each of the encounters that people have here with the risen Jesus. So let's start by looking at the first encounter when Jesus appears to that group of his followers on Easter evening. The story begins in a place of fear. Jesus finds his friends huddling together in a locked room. What were they so afraid of? Well, John alludes to maybe Jewish leaders, authorities, when he references their fear. Perhaps they're unsure of what to make of the news of the day that Jesus's body has apparently gone missing. They themselves know they didn't move the body, which might lead them to wonder, well, who did? Could the same authorities who were threatened by Jesus enough to kill him now be hiding his body so as to frame them? and stir up more violent hostility aimed 
at Jesus's closest followers? Or should they believe the words of Mary Magdalene, who claims that she encountered a Jesus who has somehow astonishingly come back to life? If what she said could possibly be believed, in addition to fearing the forces who brought about the death of their friend, these folks might fear what Jesus himself would say to them. Mary and the other women, they stayed till the end. They were weeping at the cross. They were attending his broken body. Perhaps that might be why he would appear to them. But what about these closest disciples, these men who had scattered when Jesus was arrested, who hid, who abandoned him in his moment of need just hours after he had even predicted his own betrayal? If he had really returned, what words might this Jesus have to say to them? Were they ready to hear him? Well, encountering them, Jesus seems to sense their fear, which is probably why in this short passage, he says three times, peace be with you. But it isn't these words themselves that seem to bring the peace. The story says, after speaking those words, he showed them his hands and his feet. The fear gives way to wonder and joy, but it's not Jesus miraculously appearing in the locked room that brings the joy. It's not Jesus's words of peace. It's the encounter with his scars that changes the mood. When they see his scars, they feel safe. They can take in what's happening. Why the scars? Thomas, of course, has his own interaction with the wounds of Jesus, one that's even more intimate. Having missed the Easter evening dinner party, we get the sense that his friend's story is too much for him to accept. He's skeptical and really like, who can blame him? Why wouldn't they, he be wary of such a story? Now, this isn't the first time Thomas the disciple is featured in Jesus' story. This is the same Thomas who earlier in the Gospel of John showed keen awareness that death might be the trajectory for Jesus. And with him, Thomas and his other close friends as well. When Jesus is persuading his followers to accompany him back to the area of Jerusalem, where Jesus had recently narrowly escaped being stoned so that they could go visit their family of their friend Lazarus, who had recently died, Thomas is the one to say to his friends, the other disciples, let us go too, so that we may die with him. Thomas seems to be to be an analytical guy, one who doesn't jump to conclusions, but examines the evidence, reasons things out, and he saw the forces at play. He knew death was a possible, even likely outcome, as Jesus kept challenging entrenched authorities, and he was willing to face that death himself. So the horrifying events of Good Friday would not have been a shock to Thomas, they were more likely a painful validation of his own instinct, as well as an exposure of his own weakness in the face of trial. Because despite Thomas's intention to be this good accomplice, his bravado in the face of the hypothetical oppression, when the moment came, Thomas did not stand up and die with Jesus. He disappeared just like all the rest. He hid. He had the privilege to do so, 
likely shrouded in the guilt that anticipating what was coming hadn't actually given him the strength to face it with Jesus. So no, analytical Thomas cannot take at face value his friend's word, his friends at their word. The reality of what he foresaw coming painfully true, that is too fresh. He needs hard evidence, scars he can touch with his own hands if he's going to believe that there is somehow illogically some life after the loss they've all just experienced. And Jesus meets him there. When Jesus encounters Thomas, he doesn't call him out for abandoning him, nor does he chastise his lack of faith. He speaks peace to Thomas. And then he invites him to an intimate exploration of his hands and his side. Reach out, Jesus says. Don't be shy. Put your fingers on my wounds. Don't just look, in to, look with your eyes. Go ahead. Touch them. Touch the scars. Take them in. Believe. And in that moment, the analytical, skeptical, failed accomplice Thomas is drawn from that self-protection to worship. My Lord and my God, he proclaims, not because of Jesus's words, but because of his encounter with the scars. Why? So full disclosure, I am no longer 30, uh, as I was when that picture was taken. I'm currently a woman in her mid-40s, and I've been reflecting about how this week, I've been reflecting this week about how essentially I would say the last decade of my life has been a series of cycles of loss and life after loss, of kinds of deaths and resurrections. The first took place nearly 10 years ago. I was living in Iowa City, training to be a lead pastor, finishing grad school, looking forward with anticipation and hope to the fulfilling of the next big dream, one I had been working on for a long time, moving to Berkeley, California to begin an alternative, radically inclusive faith community. And then in the last year before moving here, it became clear that the dream, the specific part of the dream I had been nurturing and pursuing for more than a decade to start this community as part of a network of churches I was connected to, I dearly loved, I thought I would be in forever, but that was not meant to be. That network of churches I was a part of made it clear that if the community I wanted to pastor was to be fully LGBTQ inclusive, we would not be welcome in their denomination. I felt heartbroken as the dream I had long nurtured and believed in seemed to die. I was depressed for quite a while. I didn't see another way forward. Still, slowly, in the wake of that loss, something rose in its place. Though we weren't connected to a formal network of communities, though we didn't know who would ever join with us in this idea, if it was just us. The Martins came to Berkeley anyway. And within a few months, a small group of folks also longing to be a part of starting something radically inclusive and safe and diverse and Jesus-centered began to gather in my living room. And weeks after that first gathering, we chose a name, we launched our website, we invited more new friends into the journey. And over seven years later, and through more cycles of loss and renewal, here we are. Haven's story is a resurrection story. 
many of you also know that nearly four years ago, within three months of each other, two of the closest women in my life, my sister, one of my best friends, both received very serious cancer diagnoses. I spent the next year and a half descending with these two beloved women into the valley of the shadow that is cancer treatment. Each of them had their own story, their own journey. As one of the core people with them and for them, I experienced my own journeys of loss and grief. And yet, each has also moved into something after the most terrifying. They each are living in their own version of life after loss. And with them, so am I. It's a different existence than it was before with its own complicated fragility, but it too is a kind of resurrection. And then there have been all these losses from the last two years of pandemic life. Losses that are still being assessed, still becoming understood, I think, for all of us as a society. I think it may take us decades, if not longer, to really understand the enormity of what has taken place and what has been lost. Of course, there's the immense tragedy of the loss of life, compounded by the loss for many of more typical rituals of grief. But even for those of us who have not lost someone we know to COVID, there have been so many other losses. Losses of milestones. Losses of community, losses of relationships. Story after story I read these days talk about the psychological impact of the pandemic on all of us, on our kids, on our teens, and how we will likely be carrying invisible wounds with us as a culture for a long time. We may be resurrecting as a collective, but many of us are aware that the losses of COVID are still being felt in our bodies, in our marriages, in our relationships with our kids, in our friendships, in our relationship to work. We may feel like we're here, like we're in this room, like we've survived these last challenging years, but if we're gonna be real, we're not okay. We're not really okay. All is not well. Loss is still felt. And this too, it strikes me, is part of resurrection. For me, the story of Jesus's death and resurrection is not, is not some story many of us were once told. It's not the story, not, of some wrathful patriarch taking out their violence and anger at humanity on like an innocent son and then saying it's all okay because he rose. Not that story. Truthfully, that's a pretty monstrous story. It does not reflect the divine heart I believe in or I'm connected to. But no, when I think of the death and resurrection of Jesus, I think of my young mother's heart, the moment my baby was wounded. I think of how deeply it undid me to see him hurt and how I longed for him to know that he was not alone, 
that his pain in that moment was not the defining experience of his life, although I'm sure for like 12, 13 month baby, it felt like it, right? If I could have bled with him, I would have. In the same way, I believe there's a mother's loving heart at the center of the universe who is moved on behalf of the pain of her children, who longs to encounter us in the places of our deepest woundings and bring not only solace and comfort, but the possibility of healing and transformation that she longs to show us as she showed us in the transformed wounds of Jesus himself, that our deepest sorrows need not defeat us, that they can become something we can rightly call new life, new creation. Behold, the divine parent says, I am making all things new. So Jesus was not raised a blemish-free person. His wounds were part of the resurrection body. They came forward into the new life he was initiating. He was forever marked by his experience of deep wounding, but those wounds didn't have the final say. Something more powerful took place as sacred spiritual power came near and transformed that which was the locus of such tragedy and pain into something beautiful and redemptive, something that connected him to others so it could bring hope and peace to those around him who had their own wounds in need of healing and redemption too. You see, I believe Jesus's wounds weren't the only ones in the room that day. He was not the only one to suffer trauma on Good Friday. The physical trauma of the event was not the only trauma. Perhaps that's why Thomas needed to see and touch the wounds. Seeing those marks of trauma on Jesus validated his own trauma too. Maybe Jesus wasn't the only one in the encounter with some scars. His were just the most visible. We don't always carry the scars on our bodies, but they mark us just the same. Still, the good news of Easter, the good news of resurrection, is that those markers don't have to be markers of shame or defeat. They can be the signposts that testify to our transformation. Perhaps that's why each of Jesus's friends was so deeply moved when they saw the scars. The truth of the way that his wounding had been transformed into something renewing, something not of death, but of life, illuminated the possibility that each wound his friends had suffered, watching him die, each wound they sustained, seeing their dreams crushed, feeling the shame of their own complicity, each of those wounds too might become a part of a bigger story that also could bring life. So in my own life, through my own experiences of loss and resurrection, the cycles of loss and new life I've encountered, they have left me changed from the way I was before. Like Elliot's little forehead, I am marked by my encounters with loss. And these losses are, are fundamental parts of my story, but they did not defeat me. They do not define me in my resurrection life. My rejection from my church home has given me capacity to hold and make space for others who've experienced rejection. 
My encounters with the fragility of life has helped me become one who can stay present to that fragility whenever it surfaces. I am living now in the hope that the still fresh wounds of these COVID losses could one day be similar sources of life and strength too. So yes, we're forever marked by our losses, but if we allow it, these places of wounding can become the places where the divine can most powerfully meet us. Our experiences of trauma and hurt will not and should not be erased, but they can be transformed and become part of who we are becoming, just like Jesus's resurrection body. It's a body that's different, that carries unique and substantial new power, even as it also bears the marks of the loss that came before. So when Jesus's friends first encountered his wounds and their fear turned to joy, he did this unique thing. He breathed the divine spirit into them and they could receive it. A week later, when Thomas was invited to touch Jesus's scars, a similar power seemed to come over him. He was moved to worship. Both of them, I think, had a divine encounter with the gift that I think is the heart of the Easter story and the reason we're called to celebrate, even in complexity, and that is the gift of hope. Hope is a powerful force in the face of wounding and loss. Hope does not need to deny the painful reality our suffering speaks to, but hope calls us forward to believe that suffering need not be the end. Hope was found on Easter Sunday in the breath of the divine, breathed from the mouth of one resurrected person into the mouths of a community who was also in need of resurrection. And I believe the same hope is available to each of us today too. So friends, I'm gonna tell the boys to come back. Whenever your story is, however you feel like you're doing at this point in 2022, whether you're more in touch with feeling life right now or feeling loss, I believe the divine is here with the gift of hope ready to be breathed into you. So as we end, we're going to extend an opportunity to receive it. We're going to do something a little different this morning. Normally at this point, I end the teaching. We take a few minutes in small group discussion about some of the things I brought up and, and we will do that. But first, we're going to have the band come up and we're going to sing a song. And we're going to invite you as we sing that song to allow yourself to receive that kind of breath of the divine that those first Jesus followers received that first Easter, to receive yourself that gift of hope. All right, so yes, our band, our singers, go ahead and come and join me. And as they come, I'm gonna invite each of us to take a moment, close your eyes if you like, call to mind one or two places of wounding or loss that you feel aware of today. I'm just inviting you to notice them. Notice those places. Acknowledge what visible or invisible marks of loss you might be carrying today. And as you're open to it, I invite you to name those. Name those to your divine parent who I believe is here 
or if you prefer to, to the risen Jesus who was present with Thomas or to the spirit, however, it's helpful for you to envision divine presence with you. And as you name those things, we're going to sing this song and I invite you to take in the truth that your pain is seen, that it is honored, that the divine is committed to your transformation and the transformation of everything around you, your family, your friendships, your community, and more. Behold, the spirit of hope encourages. I am making all things new. May it be. Amen.